this, 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 this show is brought to you by Safety FM. Welcome to Unapologetically Bold, I'm Not Sorry For. If you are a person that is tired of apologizing for being you, you know, the human part of you that sometimes feels like it has to be different at home versus work versus play, the human side that just wants to be hot, humble, open, and transparent about your wants, desires, and uniqueness. If you answered yes, this is for you. Join me, Emily Elrod, as I dive into conversations with amazing guests about what they are not sorry for in creative and loving ways. Let's get started. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another Unapologetically Bold, I'm Not Sorry For. And I am so blessed to have one of my good friends with me, Erica. Welcome. Thank you, Emily. I'm so glad to be here. This is going to be such a great conversation because I just... I just love being around you because you grow and you stretch me every time we're together. And just the things that you say, and I don't even know if you don't know that you do this or not, but you have a gift for it. It's just the first time I, I met you, you you said thank you for um, the space, allowing us to have space together, something in that in that verbiage. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wow, she's an awesome human. I was like, I want to understand more about some of the things that she said, because it's so true. It's like how we don't honor people in spaces and we take them for granted. And that's the beautiful thing that I love about you is that you, you don't, you, you, you acknowledge them and you want to know one of your missions is inclusion and making people feel welcome and together and powerful. Um, So thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for for making space for for us to have this conversation. You set the bar pretty high already, though, Emily. Now I hope we live up to it. But I'm excited to dive in and be able to have some conversation today. Awesome. So before we get started, if you'll just tell listeners a little bit about yourself. Absolutely. So this part is always the most difficult, right? I, I tell folks whenever. Um, I'm being introduced by a moderator and they read your bio. I usually come behind and say, y'all, I do stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is this is just who I am. This is how I navigate the world. And and it actually goes a little bit into our topic that we're going to discuss today. It's it's who we are in different spaces is truly based on, I feel like, what's needed in that space. And what I know to be true as a woman, what I know to be true as a woman um, of African descent, right, is that um, we wear many, many hats in different spaces. So I am a friend, I am a colleague, I'm an educator, I'm a, a bridge builder. Um, I am a, a sister, auntie, girlfriend to, to many. Um, I'm a nonprofit professional. And so for folks who need like, okay, what are the accolades, right? I have a, um, a mentor who calls it our ABCs, everything that goes behind our, our names. Um, I am a nonprofit professional. My area of expertise has been really diving into what communities need in order to thrive based on their definition of success. And really that's been my guiding compass. And so I've done that from inside the classroom, um, from inside of of jail cells, um, from working with nonprofits that have, you know, million dollar budgets to those that are on shoestring budgets. And um, in, in regards to my actual capacity and my titles, I 
have the honor of serving as the executive director for the Women's Fund of Greater Chattanooga. Um, that's been my newest endeavor. And that led me here to the city where I got a chance to meet amazing women like yourself. Um, I also am a co-conspirator for an organization called the Women of Color Collaborative, which is absolutely um, my, my passion project. And I also am a small business owner. I run the Burnett Group LLC where we seek to inspire professionals um, and deepen their impact when it comes to um, issues that most are, are prevalent to our community. And so that we can think about really stretching and growing ourselves in a way that ultimately helps our communities um, grow as well. Mm, and I love that. And anybody that knows me that listens to this, they know that my big impact and, and what I love for people to continue to learn is about how environment really can impact us all together. And there's this thing called human organizational performance. I've re rephrased it as human system performance because these systems that we may not know about policies and procedures, how much they impact us without us knowing. And we say we can control the controllables. There's some things that we don't know how much they control and may own us that may not be aware of. So that's the thing that I love that you do in the work in the space. So the show is called Unapologetically Bold. Erica, what are you no longer apologizing for? Emily, I am not sorry for practicing strategic vulnerability. And this is a concept that, you know, has evolved. I can absolutely say that it's evolved for me over time, but it has its roots truly in the trenches of my early 20s working with a, a nonprofit organization that centered the experiences of, of young people. So it was probably, I'll call it my second big girl job where, you know, I had responsibilities attached to measurables and deliverables. I was in my early 20s. I quickly determined that being inside of the classroom was not where I was going to have the most impact. And so I, I understand the, the principles of education, um, I get how learners, right, like learn and, and make meaning of the world around me. That's something that, that, that gets me excited. But I also knew that I could not have the type of impact that I wanted to have with my students by teaching them Shakespeare when they were dealing with needing to work a job in mm -hmm. order to provide for their families, or that there was a shooting, right, where a family member was injured um, just earlier that morning. And so I, I shifted my focus and decided that in order for me to sort of marry that academic side with that very practical, what does impact look like at a community level um, desire for myself, that youth development work was probably going to be the, the best like next step. And very quickly, what I recognize is that um, we are often well intended in the nonprofit sector, and yet we miss the mark. And it's sometimes by design, which is a whole other conversation about the nonprofit industrial complex, but sometimes it's by default. And what we don't see that's happening again, thinking about systems, like you mentioned earlier, is that we're actually exploiting the same populations that we're seeking to, at least in theory, um, amplify what's important to them and prioritize and center not only their needs, but their identity. And so the way that that started to show up for me in, in this field of work is that I found that we were tokenizing our young people. And I'm using we 
generously, but the reality is um, in most organizations that I've had experience with, the individuals who are at that coordinator level, right, who have the direct contact with a lot of the clients, usually by design, also then all have some shared lived experience. And for mm-hmm. us, it was mostly by identity, mm-hmm. um, uh, racial identity specifically. And so you have black and brown folks working with black and brown kids. Mm-hmm. And then, as I like to say, the folks with shiny shoes and the offices with the glass doors, you know, that sort of um, line the perimeter of our, our building typically did not look like us or the children or young people that we serve. And yet when we have a big fundraiser or an open house, right, you put at the front, quite literally, door um, these children who, yes, this is the population that we're working with and that we're serving and that we're raising money for. But, you know, I, the, the Girl Scouts do a wonderful job of, of what we call in sort of the nonprofit um organizational management, a ladder of leadership. And so mm-hmm. you're thinking about what, and that's usually a great association for folks, right? How do you climb that ladder as a Girl Scout? There's also levels to the depth of engagement, right? From a Daisy or a Brownie all the way up to that senior level. And that has to do with the way in which you are bringing that Girl Scout into the fold of their experience. And so how much autonomy do they have, right? How much leadership do they have? And ultimately, how much voice or say do are they able to um, insert into that process? The same is true when we're thinking about these young people or any volunteer or any client that we're working with. And for me, the, the sweet spot And the beauty of working with amazing women who are social workers by trade, right, who have been baptized by fire in this world, (laughs) is that then we're able to put language to it. Mm -hmm. But what we recognize is that, one, for job security purposes, we still have to make sure that these dollars are flowing into our organization. But we also need to protect these young people. And so we started to do modules, lead modules with our young people around um, strategic storytelling. Mm-hmm. So how do you own your story in a way that allows you to protect your power and the integrity of some pretty traumatic events while mm-hmm. bringing people in? Right. So there is a, there is an art to this storytelling. And uh, eventually what that morphed into me is this understanding around how to be strategically vulnerable enough that you're able to bring people into the fold of their of your understanding which facilitates their understanding of not only self, but also you. And then ultimately as an educator, what's important is that it gives them a different perspective of the landscape. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that idea of strategic vulnerability was birthed out of necessity of needing to protect my young people, Emily, right? I needed them to feel safe and secure, but then it also presented an opportunity of growth and exploration for me of then how do I center my own lived experience in a way that allows me to own a certain level of power that maybe by design has been stripped, right? Or categorized as a deficit, but then also invites you in as an outsider in a way that ultimately moves the dial. There is a goal here, mm-hmm. right? The storytelling and the vulnerability is not just for storytelling and vulnerability purposes. Mm-hmm. We have somewhere to go together but I need you to be on the same train with me. And so the way that I invite you in is by handing you this golden ticket of now humanizing me in a way and making my 
lived experience accessible enough that you're able to see yourself as a passenger on this train. Mm, That's so powerful. And it goes back to, there's two things that really I can think of this too, is one, not tokenizing people is one that's huge that I've seen happen too many times just for an ROI, um, just to make some money out of it. And I, and I do think that's another conversation. But I think the other thing that goes with it is being strategic whenever to tell your story. And if you're asking somebody to tell their story, make sure they're ready for it. Because yes. that's sometimes they're not ready to be able to tell their story and then you're going to be consoling them. And what if you just made it worse? Mm -hmm. What if you're making them relive those memories whenever they were not able to really come like to put it together and you just put them on a stage and said, go for it. We believe in you. What's the after effects? So I'd love for you to go a little bit more in the the strategy of it Mm -hmm. on even if you're telling a story like I, I had a podcast um with Trey and she talked about some of her life that she had um, some of her her um, brother was murdered whenever she was in her 20s and she talked about her story through that but what it was was her goal through that whole process of telling that story was to talk about our purpose afterwards mm-hmm. it wasn't just to give you information mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. and for her it's to impact the next generation so that they won't have to walk in that those shoes of unforgiveness and how much power. So for people that are hearing this, and I feel like everybody has a story, how can we help them to practice strategic vulnerability with this? Mm-hmm. So there's a couple things that come to mind. The first thing, and you, I appreciate you naming that, is in, in one of the sectors I worked in, we talked about the container. Do we have the proper container to hold the weight attached to this story to, and in both parties, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how the one who is telling the story, is this safe for you? Is this affirming for you, right? But then also the individuals who are receiving the story, what's the aftermath, right? And do we have the right tools in place, outlets that are available and resources that are available, should there be a reaction? Um, I am a a risk management guru. And so for me, I I say I'm going to poke holes in every single plan. I want to think about the worst case scenario. It doesn't mean that I'm still not going to do it. But I Mm want to think about the worst case scenario so that we can be prepared. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that emotional and mental risk that's involved with our own strategic vulnerability, we're human. And it is truly an outpouring of what is real and what is lived and what is true for us. And we have to be prepared to be able to handle that in a way that doesn't cause more harm, right? Mm -hmm. Do no harm in this process. And it has to start with self. If there is a story I used to work as a community organizer and we talk about the the um, story of self a lot in order to bring people in to whatever your 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 campaign is or your goal is. If part of that story of self is still traumatizing, you probably we can leave it out. Mm-hmm. Everyone doesn't need to know every bit of the details. That's the strategic part of it. Right. Mm-hmm. I get to look at the entire puzzle that makes up this experience and decide, I'm going to take out that piece and that piece and that piece. And it needs to be smart. That's that's the strategy behind it. 
Does it still create enough cohesion and understanding that people are able to connect to it? Right. Does it create sort of this arc of, of learning and experience in order for folks to to be guided somewhere? So there has to be strategy involved. So the first thing is we're absolutely going to make sure we have the right container. Whatever that means, both for the individual sharing, but then also for the audience Two, that there were really intentional about what the goal is. So what is the purpose of this story? What is the purpose of me sharing and how is it moving the conversation or um, our relationship? Right. Or the ultimate goal forward, because if it's a story just for story's sake, there's no strategy there. Mm -mm. And so we want to make sure that whatever this is, that it, it is leading us towards something. Um, I'm big on frameworks, Emily. And so one of the frameworks that I love to use, because for me, it's how we make, I call it, how we make meaning of the world around us. Mm -hmm. and it also gives us shared language. And so I believe that our cycle of socialization is pretty much the foundation of how we interact with other people and ourselves, situations, any of that. And for our listeners, because I'm an educator, the cycle of socialization is you're born, you're taught things, you then have experiences that reinforce or negate what you were taught, and then you go on to teach, right? And so I introduced this, this cycle of socialization by using a story about my girlfriend who's afraid of dogs. Mm -hmm. so it's quite easy to walk through that cycle from, you know, fear dogs, being chased by dogs, being bitten by a dog, then have a child. And now I teach the dog, the, my child of fear of dogs. Easy. Where I end is with a pretty heavy story about how my interactions with white male superior figures in the workplace was rooted and my grandfather and my father's interactions in the workplace when I was little. And so how you can deconstruct a power dynamic that I never even knew was it was never consciously taught to me. Right. Mm -hmm. it was never intentionally brought to, to our family conversation, but how I absorbed it through these mm -hmm. experiences at such a young age. That's the strategic vulnerability right there. Right. It's bringing people in around quite literally a little black and white dog. Mm -hmm. So comfortable and ending in a place where we understand how systems have been perpetuated around hierarchy and power and that specifically relates identity dynamics. So what is the strategy there? And then the other thing is to be laser focused and again, where it's positioned in relation to the larger context. Mm -hmm. So I got to be going somewhere with this, right? I'm not just telling a story to tell a story and then just sort of walking away, but it's nestled in a way that our brains are able to connect that with the larger picture. That's so beautiful too, because if you come out with some right off with, talking about the, the the deeper story with your your grandparents and what has been taught through to you like that's going to shut off some people and that's that's mm -hmm. the beauty of the strategy aspect and it's to open up doors for open understanding mm -hmm. and what I, I I find in it and it's those conversations or maybe it's and I love that you keep that you refer to yourself as an educator because if you are a true educator like like Erica is doing, if anybody's, you, you can see how she walks and it's not to force it down your throat. It's to open up a space mm -hmm. for possible understanding. It's not saying, hey, you have to believe this way. It's just saying, hey, I'm going to be vulnerable and be open and trusting that you will hear this out. 
you you will create a space for it. So for me, when did you first start practicing strategic vulnerability? Because like it doesn't that's something that's uh, it is learned. Like so you had to un- probably unlearn some things and relearn other things to yeah. get to here. I, you know, I, I'm not sure if I can pinpoint the moment, but I will say that my work with young people definitely helped because they are unapologetically who they are (laughs) and they are not really respecter of persons when it comes to, you know, I will say this, it has to be earned. Mm -hmm. What I recognized is I couldn't sit with this group of young people Um, day in and day out, you know, and expect for them to trust me and to be raw with me and to be open with me if they didn't feel the same thing back. Mm -hmm. My story was not their story, Mm -hmm. right? I did not grow up in public housing. My family was on government assistance. But if we're talking about the lived experiences of teenagers who are growing up in public housing, who are attending underfunded schools, that was not a part of my reality. And so in order to connect with them, we always, we, and, and this is, you know, a word to the wise, it's not story for story. I'm mm-hmm. not trying to find a story to match your story. So now we can be on the same plane. Please don't do that. Right. <laughs> but it was important for them to see and understand exactly who Miss Erica was, right. Whatever that looked like, that they truly understood that. And, and I was actually thinking about this. I'm glad you brought this up, Emily, um, before our time together, because it takes a lot of putting ego aside, Mm -hmm. especially as a woman, especially as an African-American woman, especially as a young African-American woman in my field, because what I am taught that I need to do and how I should behave in order to succeed based on dominant cultural standards is the exact opposite of strategic vulnerability, right? And so I had to put on a shelf, even that notion of Miss Erica has to have it all figured out. Miss Erica has to be buttoned up. Miss Erica has to present in a way that commands respect because with those teenagers, they did not care. And beyond that, you are perpetuating the very thing, right? And the very systems that we are supposedly there to help sort of uproot them out of and liberate them from to a certain degree. It may not look the exact same, but it was absolutely an extension of that. And so for me, it was getting raw, but then also realizing as my supervisor will remind all of us, you're still the adult in the room. Mm -hmm. And so if I have to be raw in a certain, to a certain degree, but I also have to be the adult in the room, that is strategy and vulnerability married hand in hand, right? And Mm -hmm. it's finest. And so for me, that's really where it started. What's necessary in order to bring them in enough that we have a genuine relationship that we can achieve our goals. And these are now adults, right? Actually one of them, and I love telling this story. Jordan was one of my students um, when I worked at this particular nonprofit in Nashville. She's now on the board for the Women of Color Collaborative. And not tokenized as, oh, the young person on our board. Mm-hmm. She is a fully functioning adult with a you know professional career who serves on a board of a nonprofit that is helping to amplify the needs and voices of other women of color. And so in order for that relationship to have thrived and now be in a place where she is serving on a board for my organ on the board for my organization, there was something that she needed to see that was relatable mm-hmm. 15 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. 
Oh, and everything that you're saying makes you think on how strategic vulnerability is everything a part of leadership. And mm-hmm. just building, uh, I'm thinking from the um, psychological safety side of it and the basically the, ser- the safety cop of the body, I call, uh, which is serotonin. And then you're also bringing oxytocin, which is the loving grandmother. Basically, you're you're creating a space for trust, love, bond along with a space of safety and security. Mm-hmm. But it's also an aspect that as a leader, we have to be strategic with it. Yes. We have to, um, like, even in essence, safety for our own selves, not to, mm-hmm. we don't want to do it just to cover our butts. But the thing is, is that you are still in the position, and I hate to say power, but you're still in a position of leadership, mm-hmm. which is a gift. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to diminish it. So oh, I did not know where this conversation was going, but I love it even more on how it's opened my eyes because I want to challenge the audience that is listening in on how can they apply strategic vulnerability to their life. So what are some ways that we might invite them into that space of, of starting that out mm-hmm. on being strategic, but also vulnerable with, with their people that they're leading? So one of my go-to, I told you I'm big on frameworks. One of my go-to is to think about your identity circle. If you've never done an activity around my identity circle, it's pretty simple. You can consider what we categorize as both primary and secondary dimensions of your identity. Those primary dimensions are those things I often say you can check a box. You opt into this, opt out of that. So race, ethnicity, Um, economic status, educational attainment, right? Those are oftentimes things that you will find on an application or a piece of paper are oftentimes our primary dimensions. Secondary dimensions get a little more tricky. They're oftentimes things that unless you engage in conversation with someone, you may not know about them. But ultimately what you're going to do is sort of plot on this map of concentric circles um, or, I mean, really it can be a list for yourself of what is most present for me in regards to my identity, um, what informs or influences how I see and navigate the world Mm -hmm. and or how the world sees or or allows me to navigate. And so one example I give here is I'm a millennial. I know what year I was born, Emily, like it's not going to change. It wasn't until roughly about seven years ago or so in some of my professional work, I realized that we're blaming everything that was wrong in the workplace on those darn millennials. Right. And so millennial made its way to the center of my identity circle because I recognized that it influenced how people saw me or perceived me in a space, even if it wasn't a priority for me. I use that identity circle as a launching point for understanding your own strategic vulnerability because it is your story of self. We talk about with kids, they bring this sort of invisible backpack with them every day to school or the the situations that they may be in. It could be hunger. It could be poverty. It could be growing up in a multilingual household. It could be that your parents are well-educated and your world traveled. Whatever those experiences are that, that sort of cultivate who they are, right? Think about a teacher in a classroom. He or she, they're met with that backpack every single day with that kid, right? For good, bad, or indifferent. As we assimilate, um, as we sort of integrate into life as adults, we forget that we too carry those same backpacks. It may be a briefcase, right? It may be a, a knapsack, but whatever it is, we carry it with us also. What are some of those things in that backpack that we can pull out 
that allows for us to be a little bit more vulnerable, a little bit more human, right? And tap into something that it takes a little bit more, a deeper dive to truly understand about you, but can build a point of connection. So my absolute starting point would be do some, some, you know, exploration of self around your identity circle. What are some of those, those stories? Um, I tell folks all the time that I didn't know that we were on public assistance. I thought everyone shopped at a grocery, at a, a warehouse with vouchers and stood under pictures of a pig or an apple or a pear or whatever it was to get your ration for the week. And it wasn't until I transitioned to a different school in a different state and I'm sitting in a home ec class and we're talking about where will we go grocery shopping for our list of ingredients, right? That I recognized that my lived experience was very different from the lived experience of my the other students in that classroom. That small moment now is an opportunity for me to pull out something from my book bag, from my knapsack, from my briefcase to use as a point of not only remembrance in my interactions with other populations, but also as a reminder of why we create space for all experiences. Mm. And so that's for me, that is the goal of strategic vulnerability. It's how do I bring people in enough that we can find some common ground? It doesn't have to be the same, but common Mm. ground enough that there's some greater understanding that occurs here. I also, my second point would be to identify sort of where you feel most disconnected for folks. And oftentimes when we look at our identity circle, it's the, the place where we're able to operate with power and privilege per societal standards, right? When you're a part of the dominant culture, I am able-bodied. That puts me in dominant culture when it comes to ability. Because mm-hmm. of that, I have the privilege, unearned privilege, to um, not necessarily remember that there are other individuals who are differently abled in certain spaces. And so I have to intentionally recall that for myself enough to be inclusive. Mm. Identify where you are part of the dominant culture as an aspect or, or dimension of your identity. And maybe that's a really great place for you to start to think about what is what are ways in which you can be a little bit more vulnerable that can help sort of shorten that bridge. Oh, amen. And uh, the one thing I love about this too is what you said earlier too, is that your story may not be their story either on that. So it makes me first, my first thought is that I'm right-handed and my father's left-handed. And like first learning, like in ergonomic design, everything is made for Mm right-handed people. And then we go, I'm a, I'm a white female. You're a person of color. Like ours is totally different lived experiences, but understanding just, just to see through that perspective. And I love that it's that relatedness that maybe there's a way that we can, as you say, you you build the bridges, like you're, you're a bridge builder for people to understand and maybe step out. And what I also love about what you're talking about, too, is my people on here know that I nerd out about the self-determination theory by Desi and Ryan. And that is the one thing that you're really honing in on is competency, autonomy, relatedness. Competency, mm-hmm. give them the information, teach them, help them grow, give them the choice to decide. I'm not going to force it down your throat. I'm going to give you a choice to see if this is something and then it's got to be relatable. Finding a relatable way that we can open up in strategic vulnerability is one of those amazing ways. So, Erica, I love everything about this. So, two part final question. Okay. First part 
uh, people are apologizing for using strategic vulnerability. Mm-hmm. What would you tell them? Stop it. <laughs> I mean, one, I, I think as and I look, I I make a living <laughs> of, of really centering my lived experience. I also think it's just part of of my unique design and wiring and calling in this life. So we apologize too much, right? If if this is your truth, let it be your truth. Um, when we feel as if we're at that point, especially as women or those who identify as women, where it's like, oh, I'm being too. And if we're going to fill in the blank with like emotional or any of those words that feel, oh my gosh, they're, they're, they're overused when it comes to a specific gender, right? Or gender identity. Stop. Someone mm-hmm. needs that. Someone mm-hmm. needs an invitation to not only you, but to themselves through you. And for me, that's the important piece. Am I, before I tell a story on a, a training, whether it's something that I'm being paid for or not, I go, am I going to feel better or worse after telling this story? And there's mm-hmm. one, Emily, that I tell around um, colorism that is still a little hurtful for me. But what I know is somebody needed to hear that story. And little Erica was little Erica. And what she thought and how she felt about a white baby doll versus a black baby doll, there is nothing that I can do to change that. But I can live and and move forward from a place of this is affirming because Mm -hmm. someone needs to understand the power of marketing, right? Mm -hmm. Someone needs to understand how this gets internalized because they never would have thought about it, especially if they live in that dominant culture. And so my my answer is stop apologizing and recognize that it's not only for you, but it's for someone else. Amen. I'm amening that one like tenfold. I love everything about that, Erica. Um, and I guess the second part of that is people love hearing what you're saying and they want to learn more about what you do or just how they can connect with you. Um, how can they do that? Absolutely. So I'm in a couple places, depending on what hat you want me to wear. Um, as I said, the Women's Fund of Greater Chattanooga is a wonderful organization to connect to if you want to think about impact, especially on a systems level, um, right across the state of Tennessee. And so we are at ChattanoogaWomensFund.org. Um, you can also find us on on all the social media platforms by the same name. Um, my work with the Women of Color Collaborative as a co-conspirator is a, a space where we intentionally curate um, opportunities for women of color to connect um, and amplify their voices through centering their lived experience. Everything you talk about from a theory perspective, Emily, that is where that lives in, in that world where we want to identify how do we take that theory, but really center identity as a part of it, because it looks different for everyone, especially around race and ethnicity, when we think about power dynamics. And so we love not only to connect with women of color, but we know we need allies in this work. And so we are at work play build on all the things. So it's workplaybuild.org, workplay build on, on all social media platforms. And then if you're interested in sort of tapping into some of this um, beautiful goodness around learning and organizational psychology and leadership um, through the Burnett Group, you can find me at Burnett Group TN as in Tennessee um, on all the platforms. And that's B-U-R-N-E-T-T um, Group TN. Oh, thank you so much, Erica, for your time. And thank you just for your authenticity, your your openness, and and being strategic vulnerably uh, during this time, or vulnerably strategic during this time, and just an amazing conversation. I thank you, and I'm so grateful for you, and for all that have listened in. Have an amazing and blessed day. 
Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Unapologetically Bold, I'm Not Sorry For. If this touched you in any way, please like and subscribe and share with your friends as we continue the message of being unapologetically bold by being hot humans who are humble, open, and transparent. See you next time.